Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Welcome to episode 66. So this episode is on unity and diversity within the Catholic Church. So we've just had our episode on different charisms, and we've also just finished the octave of Christian unity, which is a week of prayer for unity in the church that goes from the 18th to the 25th of January. So I thought in light of all of that, now would be a really good time for us to go a little bit deeper into these concepts of unity and diversity. So what does it mean for us to be unified as a church? How is unity different from uniformity, from a church where everyone looks and thinks and acts in exactly the same way? And then alongside unity, We're going to think about diversity. What does legitimate diversity look like? And how is it different from division or relativism from a church where everyone is essentially doing their own thing? So in this episode, we're going to think about how these two topics, unity and diversity, relate specifically to the Catholic Church. And then in our next episode, We're going to kind of extend this topic and think about how we can seek unity with people outside the Catholic Church, something that we refer to as ecumenism. Now, one thing that I want to say straight up is that unity is so, so, so important. It is not just like a nice to have extra or an unattainable utopian ideal. It's actually fundamental to our lives as Christians. So in the fourth episode of this podcast, we looked at the attributes of God, the transcendentals, and they are truth, goodness, and unity. These are the fundamental attributes of God himself. So it follows that for us as Christians, if we want to be saints, if we want to resemble God our Father as much as possible, then we need to foster a spirit of unity. It's not an optional extra. So in John's Gospel, chapter 17, in his account of the Last Supper, we see our Lord praying to the Father for unity. He says, The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me. So unity is one of the marks of our authentic Christianity. It's how the world knows that Jesus is truly God. And if we think about it, I mean, this is the Last Supper, right? These are the final hours before our Lord's passion begins. Jesus is about to be taken away and tortured and crucified. And this is what he is thinking about and praying for. This is what's on his mind. Unity. So if our Lord cared this much about a unified church, then it must be pretty important. So 
What does it mean to be unified? What does a unified church look like? Well, as an analogy to kind of kick us off, we can think about the much smaller institution of the family. Think about like a family that you know that is super tight knit and really close and really loving. In a united family, what do we see? We see members that share core fundamental values, right? They, they really agree on the things that deeply matter to them. They also treat each other with respect and love. They support each other. They're there for each other. They encourage each other to be better people. And even when one member of the family does something that is wrong or they make a mistake, they're corrected with charity and kindness. They're not alienated or ostracized or shouted down. Instead, the aim is always to heal that person, to help them draw closer to the family, kind of like the parable of the prodigal son or seeing, you know, seeing a mother gather their child up in their arms when they've done the wrong thing. However, even within a family that's really close and really united, you'll still find a healthy diversity. So you know those families where like all like every single member of the family is wearing the same clothes and they all have the same haircut and they're all exactly the same. But like it always makes me kind of raise one eyebrow a little bit. It's like, okay, that's a little bit weird. Within a unified family unit, there is a healthy diversity. So maybe one of the siblings is really sporty and another is really artsy and another one loves reading books and they might all look a little bit different and they all have different jobs and different interests. So broadly speaking, that's the kind of thing that we're thinking about when we talk about unity in the church. We're looking at that balance. On the one hand, it's a church where we all share one common faith. We are united to the teachings and the teaching body of the church. We love and support each other and we help each other to grow in holiness. But alongside that, there is also a healthy and legitimate diversity of personal vocations and charisms and opinions in those areas that are up for debate or open to personal preference. So we're always looking for that balance of unity and diversity. Okay. So that's like a broad vision of what unity looks like. Now let's narrow it down and talk about specific aspects of unity within the Catholic Church. Let's begin by looking at the unity of our faith and our beliefs. So within the Catholic Church, we all share one common faith. We are all required to accept certain fundamental truths. The Catholic Encyclopedia says that every Catholic should be prepared to believe whatever God has revealed and the church teaches. So everything that is passed on to us via the scriptures, capital T tradition, and the magisterium or the teaching body of the church, which is made up of the bishops in union with the Pope. So this is something that we talked about in our third ever episode. If you want to revisit the topic of divine revelation, you can go and re-listen to that episode. So the technical term for the authoritative teachings of the Catholic Church is doctrine. Doctrine is conveyed to us in written form in official church documents, such as the Catechism of the Catholic Church, papal encyclicals, dogmatic constitutions, etc. Now, you can find copies of all of those documents on the Vatican website. So I'll include a link to that in the show notes. So 
So all Catholics are called to adhere to church doctrine. Now, under that broad umbrella term of doctrine, which just refers to official church teaching, we have something called dogma. Now, dogma is a specific kind of teaching. It refers to the things that the magisterium has infallibly and irrevocably defined as true. So an example of a Catholic dogma is transubstantiation. So the fact that Jesus is truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. That is a dogma. Another example is the hypostatic union, i.e. the fact that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. So when the church defines something as dogma, she's basically saying, okay, this is something that is absolutely, definitely true for all time, no matter what. Point 88 of the Catechism says that the church's magisterium exercises the authority it holds from Christ to the fullest extent when it defines dogmas. So dogma is like the highest degree of certainty and authority possible in church doctrine. However, just because an official church teaching isn't dogma, that doesn't mean that we don't have to believe it as Catholics. Now, there are a couple of reasons why a doctrine might not be declared dogma. First of all, it might be something that is already so generally accepted by Catholics that there's no need to define it as a dogma. So in most cases, the church actually only defines something as dogma when some heresy arises that is spreading confusion and the magisterium has to step in and make a definitive statement. So for instance, we can look at the concept of transubstantiation. Christians always believed that Jesus was truly present in the Eucharist. And we find evidence of this in the writings of the early church fathers. However, it wasn't until after the Protestant Reformation, when some Christians started to argue that the Eucharist was just symbolic, that the Catholic Church had to elevate that doctrine of transubstantiation to the category of dogma in the 16th century during the Council of Trent. The second reason why a doctrine might not be defined as dogma is because the church is still developing the nuances of a particular idea. So we've said this before in other episodes, the magisterium does not ever invent new teachings or change her doctrine. However, over time, doctrine might develop and deepen in nuance as the church grows in her understanding of certain truths. So I've heard it compared to a tree that's growing. As a tree develops, it might sprout new leaves, but it's still fundamentally the same tree. So the same is true of doctrine. Doctrine doesn't change. We don't ever like chop the tree down and replace it with a new one, but it does develop. It does grow new leaves. So, in the Vatican II document, Dei Verbum, it says, The tradition which comes from the apostles develops in the church with the help of the Holy Spirit. For there is a growth in the understanding of the realities and the words which have been handed down. So, something might not be a dogma because our understanding of its nuances is still developing. So, for example, we can think of the Trinity 
it took the church a few hundred years to formally define her teaching on the Trinity. Even though Christians believed in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from the very beginning, they were still figuring out how exactly the Trinity worked. What was the difference between a person and a being, for instance? So it took a few hundred years before the doctrine of the Trinity was declared a dogma. So, to recap, Catholics are required to accept not just the dogmas of the Catholic Church, but all of her official teachings. So, for instance, everything that's laid out in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Even those doctrines that haven't been infallibly declared dogma can still be accepted by us as true. Because even though new leaves might appear on the tree, so it, that doctrine might not have reached its full development yet, we can be confident that the tree, the original tree, was planted by Jesus himself. So the job of the magisterium is to continue to develop and apply the revelation given to us in Jesus Christ. But we can be confident that God will look after the church that he established, because that is what he promised in Matthew chapter 16. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So for this reason, Catholics can confidently accept all of the doctrines of the Catholic Church, because these are things that were, these are trees that were planted by Jesus and that have been handed down to us across the last 2000 years. So one of the ways that we as Catholics can remain united to the teachings of the church and can accept the doctrines of the church is through accessing formation. So doing exactly what you're doing right now, which is taking the time to better understand what the church teaches. So this can include listening to a podcast. It can include reading the official documents of the church, reading the writings of the saints and the early church fathers, attending a doctrine class or some other means of formation. Now, it's important to remember that when we say that Catholics have to accept all the teachings of the church, we're not suggesting that the Catholic Church doesn't respect your freedom, right? And that she's going to come like storming into your living room and force you to believe what she teaches. Of course, strictly speaking, every single person is free to believe whatever they like. And in fact, the church vigorously defends every person's freedom of religion and conscience. However, we've spoken about this in a previous episode. It's kind of like the rules of basketball, there are certain established rules that have been laid out for the game of basketball. So if you want to play that game, those are the rules that you have to abide by. And now, of course, you're free to go and play a different game. You can play football or hockey or chess, if you like. But if you want to play basketball, there is a certain definition of what that game is that needs to be respected. So in the same way, when we say that all Catholics need to be in union with all of the teachings of the Catholic Church, what we're saying is that the Catholic Church has clearly defined what Catholicism is. So if you want to be a Catholic, there are parameters. These are the things that you need to accept. Now, of course, you don't have to be Catholic. You're completely free to go and be a Protestant or a Hindu or a Muslim if you want. But if you want to be in full communion with the Catholic Church, then you need to accept what she teaches. Now, just because Catholics need to be united in our faith and our acceptance of church doctrine, that doesn't mean that there can't ever be a diversity of opinion in certain areas. 
So, for example, there are some theological questions that remain unresolved, areas where the church doesn't have any official doctrine, and she leaves people free to make up their own minds. So, for example, the question of what happens to babies who die without being baptised, because they're still in a state of original sin, but they haven't committed any personal sins, so do they go to heaven or not? Now, some theologians argue that infants who haven't been baptised go to a place called limbo, which is a kind of in-between place between heaven and hell. Whereas others argue that God in his mercy might permit those children to receive the grace of salvation and go to heaven, even though they haven't been baptised. Now, the church has never definitively come down on either side of this question. And in 2007, she declared limbo a possible theological hypothesis. So basically, Catholics are free to believe or not to believe in limbo as they like. So in areas like this, where the church doesn't have a specific teaching, usually that's because it's not something that we find kind of, you know, planted in the Gospels that hasn't been given to us from the beginning by our Lord. In those areas, you're free to have your own personal opinion. Now, a second area where diversity in the church is not just permitted, but encouraged is in what we call temporal matters i.e. things that relate to the passing material secular world as opposed to our faith. So things like culture, politics, science, work, sport, etc. Now this is really important. The goal of the Catholic Church is to bring all souls to heaven. That is literally the only thing she cares about. She has an opinion on things that relate to our salvation. And that's it. Okay, the church does not come down on temporal topics, the things of of this world that are passing away. So, for instance, questions of science. Like we can take a topic like the environment. The church teaches that Catholics have an obligation to care for our common home. Because that's a moral principle, right? It's in the Bible. It's in Genesis. Respect for God's creation is one of our moral duties. However, when it comes to scientific environmental questions, like the question of whether or not global warming is caused by human beings, you are absolutely free to have your own opinion. There isn't a Catholic response to that question because it isn't a religious or theological question. It's a scientific question. Or we can think of something like politics. Very often when it comes to political questions, the church might give us certain moral principles in her social doctrine. So we have things like the right to personal property, um, the common good, subsidiarity. These are all things that we covered in episodes 41 and 42. So the church has her social doctrine. However, Often, there will be more than one option for how exactly we should implement those principles in a specific social and historical context. And when that happens, the church leaves us completely free to make our own free decisions. So the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith talks about the legitimate freedom of Catholic citizens to choose among the various political options that are compatible with faith and the natural moral law, and to select, according to their own criteria, what best corresponds to the needs of the common good. So in other words, 
As long as you're not voting for a party that is like intrinsically opposed to faith and the moral law, so like a Marxist party, apart from those situations, you are free to make your own decisions about who to vote for or which political party to join. So a situation that often arises these days is one where you might have like two or three political parties to choose from. And each of them might be proposing some things that are compatible with the moral law and church teaching and some things that aren't. And it's kind of a case of like picking your poison. You have to decide on the least of two or three evils. Now, in those situations, freedom is especially important because there might not be one clear cut solution. So what you'll often notice in these situations is that the church or the bishops of your diocese won't publish a statement that says, okay, this is the party that all Catholics have to vote for. You all have to vote for this party because it's a complex question, right? It's up for debate and people need to exercise their freedom. So instead, what you'll often see is a statement from the church that simply restates the fundamental principles of church doctrine. It's like, this is what the church teaches about euthanasia. This is what the church teaches about abortion. This is what she teaches about social justice and human rights. And then leaves you free to make your own decision, to apply those principles, because there isn't a black and white answer. So, to summarise, Catholics are required to accept the official doctrines of the church. We need to be united in one shared faith. However, within that faith, in areas that are open to debate or in temporal matters where there isn't one clear-cut moral solution, there is room for a legitimate diversity of opinion. And just as we are free to have our own opinions, we're also called to respect and honour the freedom of other people to hold their opinions, even if we don't like them. Pope John XXIII summarises it really well. He says, In essentials, unity. In doubtful matters, liberty. In all things, charity. Okay, so that's unity in relation to doctrine and faith. Now, another area that is closely related where unity is crucial is unity with the Pope and the Magisterium. Now, when we say unity with the Pope and the Magisterium, we don't mean that every person has to blindly accept as an infallible truth absolutely everything that the Pope and the Bishop say in every single circumstance. So the apologist Jimmy Aiken gives the following example. He says, Interviews with popes and bishops, not being official church documents, typically do not involve an exercise of the magisterium. Neither do books that popes and bishops publish as private individuals. So, for example, Benedict XVI's Jesus of Nazareth. Also, we have to remember that individual bishops are never infallible. So if an individual bishop says something that directly opposes the magisterium, the universal teaching of the Catholic Church, and is not in union with the Pope, then it doesn't need to be accepted by the members of the Church. But whenever the bishops, including individual bishops, are teaching in a more official capacity and they are teaching something that's in line with the magisterium and in union with the Pope, we still need to listen and be in union with those teachings. Now, unity with the Pope and the magisterium doesn't just refer to adherence to doctrine. It also refers to the way that we treat and speak about the members of the magisterium. 
As Catholics, we are called to love and pray for the Pope and the bishops, no matter who they are and even no matter what they say or do. So even if a member of the magisterium were to do something completely scandalous or say something that totally contradicted the teachings of the Catholic Church, of course we shouldn't agree with that statement or action if it contradicts the faith. But we still always have an obligation to respond with charity. At all times, our aim should be for unity and healing rather than division. We should still and always be united in charity to the Pope and the Magisterium, no matter what. In the Vatican II decree on ecumenism, it says that division openly contradicts the will of Christ, provides a stumbling block to the world, and inflicts damage on the most holy cause of proclaiming the good news to every creature. So our aim should always be to avoid sowing division and to encourage healing while still maintaining and defending the truth. Now, this can be a tricky balance. So what should we do if a member of the church, and particularly a member of the magisterium, says or does something that contradicts the faith or is maybe confusing or unhelpful or scandalous? Well, the ideal response in a specific circumstance will vary depending on who you are, what your own circumstances and responsibilities are, and what actually happened, what the circumstances are. Most of us probably won't find ourselves in a situation where we actually have like the responsibility to tangibly do something about something that's happened, you know, within the hierarchy of the church. But we might find ourselves in situations where these topics come up or someone asks us a question or we feel obliged to defend something or maybe we have like a a social media presence and we feel like we should say something online. And so we're asking, okay, what should I do? How should I respond to this situation? So rather than giving some kind of blanket solution, Let's instead go through a few principles that can guide us in a situation like this. So the first principle is truth. It's, I mean, we all know how easily, especially today, things can become distorted or taken out of context, especially when they are reported in the media. And it's very easy to see or hear something and just knee-jerk react to what happened. But it's really important that we first clarify what is actually true, what actually happened. Secondly, love or charity. This is not just some kind of wishy-washy ideal. As Pope John XXIII said, in all things charity, we have an obligation to always be guided by the question, what is the path of greatest love? Unity is a product of charity. Third, speaking of unity, our aim should always be to heal rather than divide. We need to ask ourselves, what is the path of greatest unity? How can I heal rather than causing division? Fourth, justice. We're always called to balance love and mercy with justice. So we need to defend the faith rigorously, but we also need to do so with charity. And fifth, prayer. Prayer is one of the best ways to maintain unity with the Pope and the magisterium. And this applies at all times, not just in situations of scandal or potential disunity. It's one of our duties as Catholics to pray for the Pope 
every day if we can, pray for the Pope and pray for the Bishop of our diocese. Whenever we hear something that upsets us or concerns us or disturbs our peace, the first thing we should do is take it to our prayer and ask God, what do you want to say to me in this moment? What do you want me to do? And maybe the answer to that question is nothing. (laughs) Maybe God's like, I don't want you to do anything. I want you to pray for the person involved and then leave it with me and stop worrying about it. Okay, so I said it last, but prayer actually comes first. It is so important. It is the most important. And actually, Benedict XVI writes that we cannot bring about unity by our powers alone. We can only obtain unity as a gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's actually so important that we ask God to help us to achieve unity. Now, speaking of things that disturb our peace, this is a final point that's worth making. We always have to trust in the power and goodness of God to remember that God has already won the final battle and that he will always protect his church no matter what, no matter how bad things seem. There's this great quote from St. Jose Maria. He says, It would be a sign of very little maturity if, in view of the defects and miseries of any of those who belong to the church, anyone should feel his faith in the church and in Christ lessened. The church is not governed by Peter, nor by John, nor by Paul. She is governed by the Holy Spirit, and the Lord has promised that he will remain at her side always to the close of the age. So no matter what happens, the church is the mystical body of Christ. She is protected by the Holy Spirit. Pope John Paul II writes that the Catholic Church knows that by virtue of the strength which comes to her from the Spirit, the weaknesses, mediocrity, sins, and at times the betrayals of some of her children cannot destroy what God has bestowed on her as part of his plan of grace. No matter what, God is at the helm. Okay, now the final aspect of unity that we're going to touch on today is unity of vocation. Every single member of the Catholic Church, every Christian has received the same vocation or calling. Every one of us is called to be a saint and an apostle. In other words, we are all called to get to heaven and to bring as many people with us as possible. That is literally the point of our lives. And this shared vocation unites us all in the body of Christ. As members of the Catholic Church, we are all called to be holy and to help each other grow in holiness. And this is a vocation, a calling that should extend to every aspect of our lives. It's not just that we're pursuing sanctity or holiness in the moments when we're praying or when we're at mass. No, it should be infused into every aspect of our lives. Pope Francis in his encyclical Evangelii Gaudium writes that being a disciple means being constantly ready to bring the love of Jesus to others. And this can happen unexpectedly and in any place, on the street, in a city square, during work, on a journey. In this preaching, which is always respectful and gentle, the first step is personal dialogue. We are called through our personal friendship, our personal relationships with others, to try to draw others towards God in every aspect and every moment of our lives. 
Now, within that overarching shared vocation to sanctity and apostolate that everyone has, each individual person also has a personal vocation. So maybe you are called to marriage and family, or maybe you're called to be a priest or a religious or a celibate layperson. When it comes to our vocations, we see the same balance of unity and diversity. We all have a shared vocation, but within that vocation, there is room for legitimate difference and diversity in terms of how we live it out. We all have different paths, but all of those paths are pointing towards the same goal. So in our last episode, we talked about different charisms within the Catholic Church, and this is something that should be actively encouraged and celebrated. The last thing that we want is a church full of people who live out their faith in the exact same way, like a bunch of sheep. And this is where our personal relationship with God becomes so important. Every single person gets to go on the adventure of discovering the unique, unrepeatable plan that God has for them. And the best way to discover that plan is to get to know him, to spend time in prayer every day, to receive the sacraments, to listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit in our heart, and to ask God, what do you want of me? How do you want me to be a saint? How do you want me to be an apostle? Now, speaking of being apostles, this leads to our next topic, which will be the topic of our next episode, which is ecumenism. How do we, how does this concept of unity and diversity apply in our relationships with people outside the Catholic Church? How should we talk to people who disagree with us, who have different faiths? Anyway, that is the subject of our next episode. In the meantime, I hope that you have a fantastic fortnight. I can't wait to talk to you again soon. Bye.